Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute, emerging data on HER2-positive colorectal cancer therapies. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from CGEN. In this podcast, Dr. John Marshall and Dr. Sunny Kim discuss HER2-positive colorectal cancer. HER2 has long been associated as a biomarker and treatment target for breast cancer, but now it is also a target in some colorectal cancers. Doctors Marshall and Kim take a look at some of the recent clinical data on the investigational therapies targeting HER2-positive colorectal cancer. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash CRC2. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Marshall is a professor in the Department of Hematology Oncology at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Kim is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Colorado in Aurora. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Marshall will begin our discussion. Welcome back, everybody, from those of you who were at our first podcast. This is number two on the Oncology Morning Commute. I am joined by my good friend and former partner, Dr. Sunny Kim from the University of Colorado. I'm John Marshall from Georgetown University, and we're really doing a a deeper dive on this podcast on the emerging data in HER2-positive colorectal cancer therapies. And we really spent a lot of time on our first podcast diving into fact that, yep, there are HER2-positive colon cancers. Um, Mostly, we are seeing them in left-sided colon cancers. There is some exclusivity around being RAS mutated and BRAF mutated. So the places where I've had the most luck in finding HER2-positivity is that patient I'm about to give an EGFR therapy to because they're all quote-unquote wild type. And then I go back and double check and mm, they're the ones with HER2 positivity. And we do know that being HER2 positive also predicts for resistance in with EGFR therapies, et cetera. So honestly, it's really made me much more aware that I've got to know HER2 as part of the formula in selecting even those patients for EGFR therapies. And when I've done that, it's gotten me more and more in tune to making sure my test has that uh, as a component of it and that someone has done that along the way. So I'm joined by Dr. Sunny Kim, who is an expert in this field and also uh, in, in all things GI cancer and uh, really delighted that we're going to spend some time now um, in diving into the subject of HER2 testing and treatment uh, of colorectal cancer. So Sunny, I'll shut up for a minute and let you dive into uh, this whole HER2 biomarker. So how how did it come about uh, for us in colorectal cancer? Yeah, um, well, we've we've known about HER2 for a while in other diseases such as breast and gastric cancers where um, now there are multiple FDA approvals for HER2-directed drugs there. Um, But in breast cancer and gastric cancer, the incidence of HER2 overexpression is much higher than it is in colorectal cancer, as you alluded to. In colon cancer, colorectal cancer, it's about three to 5% more more with a higher incidence in the the left-sided 
uh, colorectal cancers. Um, so, and we're also finding it more frequently with the RAS wild type, especially with the, the RAS, BRAF um, uh, wild type tumors. Uh, we find that uh, it's the incidence rates can go up to even high as 15%, which is which is something that I think a lot of providers need to know so that they're attuned to the fact of testing for HER2. So um, even though it's a very small population, uh, we have seen through multiple studies that this is targetable and patients seem to derive a clinical benefit in the form of response rates and progression-free survival improvements. Um, and it's also really nice to be able to give these patients some chemo-free options. Um, so we, uh, we are very uh, strongly recommending to get that HER2 testing done in colorectal cancer, even though it is a small population. And in terms of how to do that testing, so the classical testing that we use, very similar to breast and gastric cancer, initially is the IHC testing where they stain for the HER2 protein on the tumor cells. And then if it's equivocal, we reflex to in situ hybridization or, or ish fish. And we can see if there is um, an amplification of that HER2 um, gene locus. And if that's positive too, um, those patients are very likely to respond to um, HER2-directed uh, drugs. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of our pathologists are not even aware of this phenomenon. So we might request HER2 testing internally on a, on a biopsy we've got on one of our patients. And uh, it, don't be surprised if your pathologist is hesitant to do that because of concern over reimbursement, this kind of thing. But the reality is this has been on guidelines for quite some time where there are not formal FDA approvals, but NCCN and other guideline acknowledgements that trastuzumab, triflycopatinib combinations, pertuzumab combinations have been demonstrated to have low-level benefit, not nearly the high ceilings that they have in breast cancer with HER2 targeting, but certainly in our cancers, or in colorectal cancer, there has been uh, acknowledgement of benefit. So we should, in some ways, have been doing this for a while, as you say, and it's, but it's only been recently through the really dedication, as you alluded to earlier, of, of new studies being done with some of our newer next generation kinds of targeted therapies that um, we're really seeing this, this you know, in increased awareness, increased benefit rate uh, compared to what we had before. Um, and you know, we've got FDA kinds of approvals expected on some of these. So the highest level of drug approval is being seen uh, on some of these uh, approaches. So let's let's jump right in. And uh, you know, we, we in, in breast cancer, you know, they get standing ovations. In GI cancer, we get we get back alley, uh, uh, you know, nods and journals. But uh, maybe let's do the Destiny CRCO one study and can maybe walk us through what that's all about and what that drug is or maybe drugs are, um, and um, kind of walk us through what that sh study showed. Yeah, um, I'm a huge fan of this drug, and I promise I'm not getting any kind of funding from them. But um, you know, Destiny CRCO1 looked at an antibody drug conjugate drug. Um, it's called Famtrastuzumab Dirks-TCAM. And basically, for those who are not as familiar with antibody drug conjugates, um, these are really cool drugs. Um, they're it's essentially kind of like targeted chemotherapy. 
It consists of a antibody portion that targets the, um, the receptor, the protein of interest, in this case, HER2. And then there's a linker, and then it's combined with a, a payload. It's called um, a topoisomerous inhibitor in this case, and it's chemotherapy that's inserted directly into those tumors that express um, HER2. So for this study, uh, it was really pretty broad in terms of eligibility. Um, it was really any patient, it was a patient who had um, any kind of HER2 expressing tumor, and that could have been done through next-gen sequencing or um, FISH and IHC. Uh, because these populations are rare, this was a, a phase two study, um, and um, it was about 80 patients. And um, they, they did a really smart thing where they enrolled patients, um, like I said, with any kind of overexpression or amplification, and then really did these subset analysis to see which patients derive the most benefit. And what's um, also interesting about the study is that uh, about 30% of these patients had received prior HER2-targeted therapy. So these are patients that had previously, previously seen drugs targeting this, um, this protein. And um, as you know, I, you know, I'm a gastric cancer guru. In gastric cancer, we find that most patients who have had prior HER2-directed therapies, they do not respond later on, at least with some of the older HER2 drugs. And so this was a really key part of that study. And they found that the, the patients who derived the most benefit were the patients who had the high IHC um, staining HER2 tumors. Um, and uh, the response rate was as high as 45%, uh, with including one complete response and a bunch of partial responses. Um, the PFS was about seven months. And again, the, the importance of the study was that they saw responses in patients, even if they, even if they had seen prior her to directed therapies. Uh, in terms of toxicities, we, we know that this is um, a targeted drug, but I think some people forget that it is chemotherapy. And so we get all the side effects that we get with chemotherapy, the cytopenias, the fatigue, the nausea. And so if a patient has really marginal performance status, which fortunately is not so much the case with patients with advanced colorectal cancer, um, you just wanna make sure that you know, they're being supported and you watch them very carefully. Uh, but this, this was Destiny CRC-01 um, and uh, it's, it's, it's a really, really great drug. Uh, what's also great about this drug is that it has that bystander effect where even the neighboring cells that may not express HER2 uh, can also be um, targeted in the process, uh, which I think is, is a very interesting um, feature of this drug. I couldn't agree more that this kind of drug, this strategy is maybe among the coolest things we're seeing. And this drug is a great example of how older technology merged with newer sort of concepts about how these things work are enabling us to expand the kinds of patients, the number of patients who can benefit relatively dramatically, as you allude to, to these therapies. The standing ovation I alluded to at ASCO this past year was really defining a new subgroup of breast cancer patients who were formerly in the triple negative crowd, but they were low level expressing HER2s and these patients were responding because they didn't have to have, they didn't have to light up with HER2. They just had to have enough HER2 expression to be the hook to grab this antibody so that then the targeted, the, the, the targeted, as you say, chemotherapy can be delivered. And then this bystander effect. When people ask me about new technologies, everybody's of course all excited about immunotherapy. I'm equally excited about these kinds of approaches because the more 
antigens, cell surface antigens we can define that we can then hook things to the antibody. You know, we're, we're gonna have a dramatic increase in these over the next couple of years in all GI cancers. We're seeing more of these come down the pike. So I think this is just one of many that are going to be used. And so that really brings to the to question about, well, what about my low level HER2 you know, colon cancer patient? Should I extrapolate, you think, my data from breast cancer and some of the leads that we got from low-level expressors, even in the Destiny 01 study, there was a branch of patients that were treated with low-level expression with some minor benefit. You think I should be trying to ask for Aetna to pay for that for, for a patient with low-level uh, HER2? Um, unfortunately, I don't think the data is there. Like you mentioned, um, with colorectal cancer, they found that in the patients with the low IHC staining HER2 positive tumors, like HER2, HER, HER2 like one plus on IHC or ish negative disease, they actually didn't really see any responses there. Um, and I think this look, this is due to the staining pattern of the HER2 receptor in different cancer types. So it's very different in breast cancer and then gastric cancer and then colorectal cancer. I know in gastric cancer, they're also investigating the use of this drug in that low HER2 expressing tumor. And um, you know, we'll, we'll get results hopefully um, uh, soon. But in colorectal cancer, I, I just don't think the data is there yet to use in that low HER2 expressing tumor. So let's kind of shift gears a little bit. You know, we talk about um, Trastuzumab Dirac-Tecan is kind of dual therapy. It's blocking the pathway with trastuzumab and it's bringing chemotherapy in the form of a TOPA-1 inhibitor along with it. But, you know, I think about our pathways in colorectal cancer and they're just not as dominant as they are in some other cancers where you can clip, you know, an EGFR <laughs> pathway in lung cancer and it's miraculous or yeah, HER2 in breast cancer, it can be miraculous. We need to come at these often with more than one drug. And sort of the first demonstration of that was the Heracles study, which was trastuzumab lepatinib. I referred to that earlier as a way of, of coming at this, but uh, a more, I don't know, next generation of this same concept is the Mountaineer clinical trial, which looks at a newer TKI to catnib, also approved in other disease settings, being combined with trastuzumab, uh, with or without trastuzumab in un, not, patients with untreated for HER2 uh, colon cancer. So uh, this was a positive study and is in front of the FDA as we speak for this relatively rare, as we talked about, subset of patients. What's your take on this data relative to the excitement you had with Destiny 01? Uh, is this in that same category? Is it different? What, how, how would you distinguish these? Yeah, so uh, the Mountaineer study, this is a phase two study. This was it looking at the combination of trastuzumab and um, tucatinib, which is a anti-HER2 tyrosine kinase inhibitor, TKI. Um, and uh, it was about 80 patients. Uh, these patients were her to amplify um, RAS wild type, and they had received prior chemotherapy. Um, what we found was that the response rate was upwards to 40%, um, and uh, with an OS of about two years. Yeah, I think that's actually a fairly remarkable response rate. And I think one of the other pieces to this study is the very low side effects. And so you had this, you had a response rate, but you had an impressive PFS, 
and a relatively low side effect profile. So as we contrast that, um, you know, the um, DESTINY study, higher response rate in, in those patients that were HER2 positive, um, and, but, you know, uh, arguably longer PFS on the uh, Mountaineer study, lower toxicity. So it's trade-offs, response versus sort of uh, PFS is the way I was looking at the comparison of those two approaches. Um, what I like about these two studies, the Heracles and the Mountaineer study, is that you know, there's no chemo involved with either of these regimens, um, which may be appropriate, appropriate for a different subset of patients. Um, like you mentioned, these are dual combinations, a trastuzumab combined with, in the Her Heracles study, um, with lapatinib and Mountaineer with tucatinib, um, both oral drugs. And uh, the response rates were still pretty impressive um, in the, you know, the 30% range. And these are patients who have received, you know, decent amount of chemotherapy at that point. And it's nice to be able to give them a completely chemo-free option. You know, certainly trastuzumab and these oral TKIs have their own side effects, but um, it's a different side effect profile. And I think could be very appealing for, for patients who are interested in just getting a break from the, the cytotoxic chemotherapy. Um, and again, the response rates are, I think, still impressive in the third line setting. Um, and uh, I'm also definitely excited about both of these studies and what it affords uh, uh, patients, um, different treatment options. You know, we'll probably be getting into the weeds of a patient who's HER2 positive and which one would you use first and second. And, um, I, you know, again, back to the toxicity differences that you see. Um, so, you know, but I think you have to make your decision based on the patient in front of you. We'll talk in our next uh, podcast about some cases and uh, how we made decisions one way or the other about using different treatments in, in those patients and recommendations around that. So I do think there'll be some subtleties to these patients and uh, different therapeutic choices based on, um, you know, how they're doing. Uh, are they looking to avoid the chemotherapy and the like? It, it, you know, we still have to, now, now as colon cancer docs, we never used to have to worry about cardiomyopathies. Now we're going to have to start doing echoes on people, right? So these are still the same old drugs from a toxicity perspective, right? We got to check our cardiac function regularly. We got to um, make sure we're looking out for those kinds of issues, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, with the... Um the My Pathway study where they looked at trastuzumab plus pertuzumab. I mean, there, there is certainly a risk for cardiomyopathies and uh, depending on the institution, it may be hard to get an echo very quickly. And all this needs to be considered when we think about these, these new treatment options for us um, that breast cancer docs have been very familiar with for a long time. Um, you know, there's, there's also even more options. Um, there was a recent study with um, uh, looking at trastuzumab trastuzumab plus another drug called pyrotinib. Um, this targets both HER2 and EGFR. And uh, the patient population was much smaller. It was only 16 patients, but the response rate was 50%. Of course, you know, the more patients you have, more likely that response rate is going to go down. But this is also something that is, is, is coming down the pike and we should, be, we should be aware of too. It always amazes me that when we find these new leads, I'm, I'm from the old school, I'm really old school, where we find something and we would have a positive result. And I would thought, okay, we should now go look somewhere else for another something. 
And instead, we tend to kind of keep working on that pathway and that angle to try and optimize that. It creates a competitive marketplace, yes, uh, but with that competition comes options. Um, and so even for a relatively rare uh, colon cancer subtype, we've already just talked about four different approaches, three of which would be accessible to doctors today, either through FDA approvals or guideline approvals, et cetera, plus clinical trials that are looking at ways to target these in a you know, refractory or, or subsequent setting. So um, it just raises the uh, importance that we started this discussion with about testing, that you're, not even, you're gonna miss all of this if you don't know that for your patient. We talked uh, a bit about repeat testing, and I think we maybe should kind of address that again. So let's say I'm playing option one that's got a HER2 positivity with it. Do you think I've got to retest before I try a, a HER2 beyond progression approach? What's your, I have an opinion on that, but I'd, and, and mine would be, yeah, ideally we should retest if you can. What's your take on that? Do we need to do that? Yeah, I agree, um, especially since we're seeing data that, um, you know, with uh, low HER2 expressing tumors, we're not seeing that benefit uh, when we target those cancers with HER2-directed antibodies or, or oral drugs. Um, and, you know, if you were to treat that patient with a different kind of, um, of chemotherapy, perhaps that during that period of time, you would allow for the reemergence of that HER2 clone, and then you can come back at it with some kind of HER2-directed uh, drug. And I think that's been the case for other GI cancers like gastric cancer that, you know, just kind of pounding it with HER2-directed therapies um, line after line without really understanding if a HER2 clone is even still there, um, it has not been shown to be fruitful. So for me, I agree with you that retesting is, is key. Yeah, polyclonality is a, is a really important concept that you're bringing up about you know, our, all of our cancers that we treat, but it's true, absolutely true in the GI cancer space where it's no longer a big field of grass, but it's more like a forest with different kinds of trees. And some of the drugs kill pine trees and some of the drugs kill oak trees. And, you know, if we wipe out all the oak trees, there's no point in keep giving oak tree drugs. Um, I'm just thinking of this because we will have no more trees on our planet soon. Um, so, so what the heck, we might as well. Um, uh, there's other important scientific issues to be addressing out there as well as cancer, for sure. Um, but it's back to retesting. What's the easiest way to do the retesting? And blood testing probably serves a nice bridge here for us. Um, but if you, know, if you can get repeat tissue testing uh, before going from line to line, if you can give a break between the two with some other kind of treatment, um, that's probably a good strategy too, to, uh, if you will, rest that HER2 clone. Uh, and it's the one that would then emerge next. And you may be able to reuse these HER2 uh, kinds of approaches. And it's opened up all sorts of concepts around dual targeting as well. So if even if you've got low level, could you be giving some HER2 therapy on top of other treatments? Uh, could the combination of HER2 and HER1, which is EGFR, is being rekindled uh, as a concept to study. So uh, there's a lot going on here, and I think um, it's going to influence 
our patient's treatment choices. Um, let's say a patient is down, down the line of therapy and the doc goes back and looks and says, well, I'm, I don't know that we did HER2 testing. Is this the sort of patient where they should stick a needle in and it's worth it um, to, to do a repeat biopsy to make sure you're not missing a HER2 positivity? What would you say in a risk-benefit analysis on that? Yeah, um, well, I think in a patient who is naive to any HER2-directed drugs, you know, if I, I, I wonder if a repeat biopsy at that point is definitely necessary. Um, perhaps, you know, the archival tissue or a older specimen would be adequate because we don't expect that clone to necessarily be gone um, since they never received her to directed drugs. Uh, but that certainly is, is something that can be debated. If, if a patient is willing to get a fresh biopsy, that's ideal. But I, I think an older specimen in that situation would be appropriate. All right. I hope your morning commute is over or long over. If that was a long commute otherwise, you need to get a plug-in hybrid is what you need to get if that's how long your, your commute was. Um, but uh, Dr. Kim, thank you so much for joining me this morning or whatever time it is you're listening to this. Um, and stay tuned. We have one more podcast to come. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash CRC2. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.